You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's the last co-main event podcast of the year. Yeah. Uh, not the last one ever, oh. unfortunately for you. I know that you were excited that maybe your contract would expire and you could go uh, looking for bigger and better opportunities. I just but- want to test the market. That's all. Is that too much to ask? In this case, you're running a monopsony. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> Neither am I, but I'm I'm knee deep in it. Uh, it's a uh, whiteout, blizzard conditions outside. Somebody just skied past your window. Do you see that? Liter- literally, as I was skied. doing the introduction to this show, somebody cross country skied past my front window. My wife and child are in the other room having lunch. So if you hear any background noise, uh, wild crying and and hysterics, that's just my wife and the my daughter trying to calm her. I would assume. She's very soothing, I find. She has a very soothing, soothing voice. Did you have any harrowing experiences on the way over here? Did uh... a, a couple. We couldn't have really chosen a worse time, I think, to record today because, you know, it was fine all morning, early afternoon. Then, like, a blizzard basically started at 1 and we decided to record at 2. So I did that thing several times on the way over here where... Uh, you're just, you're unsure if your car is going to stop in time to avoid hitting something. And it's, so it can be a surprise for everyone. Did you come across a dog in the road trying to alert you that its owner had gone into a ditch <laughs> or anything like that? Uh, you know, now that you mention it, that's probably what that dog was trying to tell me. Um, man, well, I hope that guy's okay. Yeah. I'm sure someone else came along. Uh, three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one, Daniel Cormier versus John Jones is this weekend. That's kind of a big deal. And in round number two, Donald Cerrone prepares to take on Miles Jury at the same event. And, you know, not to sound conceited or anything, but I bet Miles Jury can kind of can't believe how easy he thinks it's going to be. And in round number three, so 2014, you sucked. Hey, 2015, what's your deal? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Ryan Kane, who writes, My question is about Bellator making a push for Brock Lesnar and maybe even Fedor. I'm not totally sure that Brock wants to return to MMA to get his ass kicked by the high-level UFC heavyweights. So that makes me believe that Bellator has a good shot. He seems like a perfect fit for Coker's promotion, high-level production and theatrics, big paydays, uh, beating the brakes off guys like Czech Congo, Bobby Lashley, etc., while still filling that competitive ish itch he has to quote unquote donkey kong the hell out of dudes if scott could ever convince both brock and fedor to meet in bellator what do you guys think that would that would mean for bellator as a business moving forward big long-term ramifications or little long-term ramifications uh so we're doing that thing that we do ben once every i don't know five or six months where we wildly speculate about brock lesnar returning to mixed martial arts i know that is it is it brock 30 already yeah it's brocktober all over again (laughs) snuck up on me uh, i know that john morgan had a report i think on on your website mma junkie this this past couple of days that uh, uh wwe officials are moving forward as though lesnar's not going to be around their company for very long because they feel like he wants to come back uh and and make one more run in the ufc and and 
I don't know. This this uh, rumor has kind of like been hanging around as long as Brock Lesnar has been gone. Uh, is it the kind of thing where it's been going on so long that there's got to be some fire underneath all this smoke, or are we just sort of getting involved in wishful thinking, hoping that uh, the guy who f- during his career was the biggest pay per view draw in the sport is gonna is gonna come back? I don't. know. I mean, you never know with these pro wrestling types, right? Like it could be like that they are the source of the smoke uh, to get a better pro wrestling deal. Right, you, you which I think Brock Lesnar has actually done a couple yeah. of times <laughs> well, before. And the uh, the just the mention from Dana White that, hey, I haven't even spoken to Brock. Well, didn't Rampage say that you know when he signed his deal to come back to the UFC that he and Dana White haven't even spoken? So that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And for the f- pro wrestling people to be saying, well, we're operating as if Lesnar's going to be gone to go back to the UFC. I mean, they can know we're operating as if he's going to be gone but they don't know necessarily where that means he's going to go. So, hey, there is, I guess, a possibility that maybe he ends up in Bellator fighting Fedor uh, in a fight that would have been awesome four years ago. I was curious when we were talking about this briefly at a little little soiree that you hosted yesterday. And I was saying how if I'm Fedor, I, t- I take that fight against Brock Lesnar. And you were saying if you're Brock Lesnar, you take that fight against Fedor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... That's that's a big money fight if you're either guy and and uh, you know there's no telling what Fedor's been up to these past several years like laying in the in the sauna in the frozen tundra of Siberia getting his his upper quads and and hamstring areas whipped with those weeds. You don't think he's out there on the uh, the basketball court or whatever they do out there shadow boxing on the blacktop? Yeah, wearing some secondhand uh, green army fatigue pants and no shirt. Well, here's the thing, though. We know what Rock has been doing, and it is not fighting. Yeah, but it's, you know, keeping himself in relatively good shape, uh, uh, you know, at least cosmetically. And uh, he's probably still got that jet death clutch gym in his backyard, right? He's he's going out there and rolling around with Chris Tuscherer every no, every not. six months. No, he, no, I mean, not. Maybe recreationally. Maybe just, just for those guys' own enjoyment so, so they can stay so friends. Wait, all right, let's say you're telling me if they make this fight tomorrow, you're you're taking Fedor? Well, it is the kind of weird fight where anything could happen. But, yeah, I mean, I just I could not allow myself to pick Brock Lesnar over Fedor. I would have to punch myself in the face for doing that, even if it turned out to be right. I would think in this day and age – Considering both of their advanced ages and the relative positions that they have as retirees, Brock Lesnar might win that walking away. Yeah, well, who knows? He might, or Fedor might come out there, punch him in the face once, and Brock Lesnar will turn around and run. Uh, <laughs> well, that could also be the case. But okay, I mean, back to the terms of the question, right. like, should we engage in this flight of fancy where in Brock Lesnar could show up in Bellator? And then, you know, for what it's worth, I can, I can tell you that, uh, I've had people, you know, uh, reporter types who kind of are, are swearing up and down that Lesnar is going to show up in, in Bellator, which I think makes a certain amount of sense for him because, uh, you know, that he's the kind of guy that Viacom might open up the purse strings for. Obviously, you're going to get yourself into some easier competition over there. And, uh, uh, you know, the ratings at this point aren't, aren't really that big of a deal or aren't really, there isn't that big of a difference between, uh, regular UFC programming ratings on Fox Sports One and, and Bellator ratings there over really on, isn't. on Bellator or on, uh, Spike. And so, uh, if you're Brock Lesnar and they can offer you the money, uh, it kind of makes sense as far as I'm concerned. Although, I mean, I think that the stumbling block, 
uh, you might get into is that he already has this previous existing relationship with the UFC. He knows that the UFC is the biggest game in town. Uh, so I feel like it would be kind of a surprise to see him show up in Bellator. But if he is serious about getting back into mixed martial arts, like I wouldn't be shocked, to be honest with you. Well, my question then becomes, you know, say you can't get Fedor. Say Fedor is actually like serious about, no, I'm not doing this stuff anymore, which, you know, more power to you, brother, if that's Fedor's stance. Then who does Brock Lesnar fight in Bellator? Like, that's, there's, it's a heavyweight wasteland over there. Yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like would appeal to me about <laughs> yes, it if I'm I mean, Brock Lesnar, right? Yeah, but I mean, that's you operating from your perspective where the thing you want to accomplish as Chad Dundas the fighter is not to end up in any difficult fights. Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if I'm Brock Lesnar, would totally be my strategy. Uh, but I don't know, man. Does it matter who Brock Lesnar fights if you get him over there in Bellator? Like, I feel we've already seen an established trend in Bellator that they are not above you know, giving you a couple of James Thompsons or, uh, you know, maybe even go fishing for a Kimbo Slice type individual that uh, that you're going to be able to take down and punch in the face a hundred times until until it's over. And if Bellator books uh, Kimbo Slice versus Brock Lesnar, that will be the sign that we've given up on the future in this sport, that we've decided all we're trying to do is recreate the past in as lazy and ham-fisted a way as possible. Well, I think that that would be the message no matter who signed Brock Lesnar, right? Like if the UFC goes out and signs Brock Lesnar and brings him back in and and gives him a couple of tomato cans to beat up, isn't that a sign that in 2015 we're trying to wring all of the money out of this dish rag that we possibly can? Like, Because to me, like as you and I sit here, I think we are both on the same page that Brock Lesnar is not actually among the best, most thoroughly trained and and diverse of skill heavyweights in the world, right? Like, if he comes back to the UFC, he's probably not beating Cain Velasquez. He's probably yep. not beating Junior Dos Santos. Um, no. Put him in there with, with Fabricio Verdum. Somebody probably gets choked out, and it's probably not Fabricio Verdum. Uh, like, we've seen the Lesnar. We've seen what happens. We've seen the end of the Lesnar parade, right? But he had Jared Vicker Titleitis, Chad. Some tomato cans, some tomatoes, that stuff has good nutrients. Yeah, that would, Maybe that'd probably be that good would, for your diabetes. That would be good for his intestines. Like but, is. but like, if, the, if he comes back to the UFC and they, they, you know, I, I don't have a hard time believing they would match him up against top competition just to see him get beat. Uh, if he comes back to the UFC and they match him up against some guys that we feel reasonably sure Brock Lesnar can beat, like, that's just as, that's just the same thing, right? Like, that sends the same message that we're just trying to, to like, you know, get 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 the cash flow back up to yeah. where. Okay, yeah. To to an extent, um, I would just counter with name me five current Bellator heavyweights. Wow, uh, Nikolai Volkov is one of them. Is that a pro wrestler? Uh, you've got the, 80s. the the Crusher uh, Nikita Khrushchev is okay. a Bellator heavyweight. Nikita I'm pretty Khrushchev. sure. Okay, Soviet premier Nikita uh, Khrushchev. You've got uh, oh well, Sergey Vavkolov is over there. He's mm. a big time deal for yes. for Bellator. Also, maybe a gun runner out of St. Petersburg. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter. Does it matter? Like <laughs> yeah, it, it matters to some extent. I mean, it, it can't just be like Brock Lesnar, superstar Brock Lesnar against a fighter B. Like it has dis- to be. I totally something. disagree. I think you, if you're Bellator and you sign Brock Lesnar, Justin McCulley, the I insane feel like one, that's a game changer, and you can have him over there fighting whoever. Frankly. Maybe, maybe for one or two fights, you can have him fighting whoever, but and then you put him up against whichever nameless, faceless Russian has your, has your belt, right? And you, and you just see, roll the dice, see what happens. All right. Well, 
it's going to take a lot of money to get him over there in the first place. Yeah. So you got to find a way to recoup that cash. I have a hard, hard time believing he comes back, but we'll see what happens. Uh, next question comes from Trevor in Toronto. He writes, I know you guys touched on this last week, but I think it's a compelling topic in the wake of all the brain trauma drama going around MMA these days. Compared to most fighters, Lyoto Machida has taken very little damage in his fights in his time in the UFC. Aside from his losses, he really hasn't taken too much damage to the head. He strikes me as a person who could continue fighting into his 40s. You could attribute this to his style of fighting, which many have perceived as quote-unquote boring until he knocked out Tiago Silva and Rashad Evans and went on to win the title. My question, why is quote-unquote playing it safe so bad? Why did Machida only become famous after he knocked people out? Extrapolate this this thought process to other fighters and other scenarios, please. You know, this reminds me kind of of uh, something Miles Jury was saying. I was talking to him before this fight with Donald Cerrone uh, coming up here this weekend. And, you know, it's kind of asking him, why do you think it is that you're undefeated and yet people don't really seem that excited about you? Like, Miles Jury, definitely not the fan favorite in this fight with Donald Cerrone. And he was talking about that, hey, maybe Cerrone's style, one where he's willing to get punched in the face and, in Jury's words, get dropped every single fight. Uh makes you a little bit more popular with the fans, whereas his emphasis on defense uh, keeps him from becoming popular because he doesn't get in those kinds of slugfests. And Machida faced some of that. You know, we used to always do the thing where we'd talk about the elusive Lyoto Machida with air quotes around it, uh, and everybody would complain that his style was overly defensive and boring and, and not a whole lot happened. Uh, but then when you see him, you know, do that stuff like he's been doing lately, pulling off that stuff where he just needs to kick uh, Clarence Byron Dalloway in the body once... And you think, you know, maybe there is something to that if you can pull off that style. He has not taken a whole lot of damage. He seems like he's probably going to age well uh, as a fighter. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe in the end, we forget all that the, the time period where we made fun of him for being too boring. And if he's still knocking fools out in his early 40s, we recognize Lyoto Machida, he, he was on to something. Yeah, and, you know, I think we've said it before on this show, but the results that we've seen from him at 180 pounds, 185 pounds recently kind of makes you believe that he should have been at middleweight the entire time. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of that perception of him maybe as boring, uh, came from the fact that his style doesn't seem particularly effective at going out and winning a three round fight that's, that's contested under the unified rules. And, uh, is gonna be scored on a 10 point must system round by round, right? Like, that's kind of like the worst, that's kind of like a worst case scenario for Leota Machida's style, where, uh, you know, if you gave him the opportunity, he would probably slide around the cage like that for, for three or four hours until the other guy <laughs> committed himself to a striking combination and then, you know, he could counter it. Like, yeah, such, a, I mean, you look at those two decision losses to Phil Davis and Rampage Jackson, and those are two fights where I think you definitely see that, like, right. where it seemed like he got kind of screwed by the, the way judging works. Yeah. And at middleweight, it seems like his power kind of translates, you know, down a weight class and, and he's able to stop guys like Clarence Byron Dalloway and Mark Munoz and, and some of, you know, the, the, the other guys that he's fought at, at, at middleweight, uh, you, when we talk about brain trauma though, you know, one of the things I always think of that, that, you know, seems like an obvious point once you say it is that it seems like most of the damage that's being done to guys, uh, in this sport probably happens in practice and in training rather yeah. than in the actual fights. And while I think it's a good thing that Lyoto Mochita hasn't, uh, experienced a lot of head trauma in his fights, hasn't really, you know, been knocked out a ton of times, uh, 
I think one of the other things that probably like adds to his longevity in this sport is, is how he trains. Obviously we don't know for sure, but it seems like whenever he's on one of those countdown shows where they show his, his training and his preparations, uh, it seems like he's not necessarily working the old school Pat Militich. We're going to go out there and beat the crap out of each other every day and yeah, practice. Just close, close the door to the racquetball court and bounce each other off the walls. Yeah. Until- that doesn't seem like Leota Machida's doing that. It seems like he has a more, uh, you know, uh, uh, like cerebral approach, I guess you could say. He's doing lots of yoga and stuff like that in those, uh, you know, in his garage. I think he was doing yoga in his garage with, uh, his, his yoga, his yogi master guy when he was getting ready for his last fight at, at light heavyweight, I think was in the countdown show. So if it turned, I'm just saying, if it turned out Leoto Machida wasn't doing MMA meathead training yeah. and was instead doing a lot more, uh, form based, stuff and and was kind of not necessarily sparring hard a ton like that wouldn't surprise me and i think that's a thing that could contribute to him being around for for maybe longer than some of these other guys you know one of the things on that note that i heard from a lot of people recently we got a video up on mma junkie and we talked to a bunch of different people about you know what do you how do you strike that balance between training hard enough that you're ready for the fight when it gets there and not training so hard that you risk injury or you know cut down your career uh, by beating yourself up in, in the gym. Like, how do you find that balance? And one of the things that a lot of people said was that you you should be smart enough to know when to change your emphasis over the course of your career. Like, if you've been doing this for 10 years, you don't need to spar as often as you did when you had been doing it for 18 months. Like, you know how to fight. It doesn't take you as long uh, to get your timing back and to, to get all that stuff that you need to get down in order to just sharpen your skills before, when the fight comes up. You don't need to be in there, you know, banging on each other's heads twice a week uh, at a certain point in your career. You've you've already kind of established the mental toughness you need and put enough tools in the toolbox, and then it's just a matter of game plan, getting everything together, uh, getting in good shape. And uh, making sure your timing's there, and you can do that otherwise other ways than just sparring. So I think that that's something that people are starting to come around to, because I think a lot of people that came up in the sport a certain way uh, with a certain kind of training, and maybe they needed that for the first couple of years of their career when they were inexperienced, and you know they needed to, to get through some of that stuff in the gym so that they didn't go through it out in the cage on fight night. But you don't need to keep doing that your entire career. Your approach should change as you get older and more experienced. Uh, and maybe that's just part of the growing pains. It's still kind of a young sport in that regard. Yeah, and then the question is as to why playing it safe is regarded as a bad thing, I feel like is a conversation for a different day since we've already gone on at length, uh, but I think we probably all know the answer. Yeah, most, I think we for do. For the most part. Uh, the next question comes from Taylor Loyal. He writes, let's talk about Hector Lombard. Let's. Yeah, let's do that. Back in 2012, he was being touted as the guy outside the UFC who could come in and make a run at the title. He hadn't been beaten in 25 straight fights and was walking through fools in Bellator. Once he made it to the UFC, he he saw his rise to the top slowed down by a pair of questionable split decisions, and he wisely dropped to 170 pounds. With Lombard back in action at UFC 182 after consecutive wins, just how close is he to entering the welterweight title contention logjam? So just a well-written question by by Taylor Loyal. We should get him on board yeah. to do some copy, create some content. Is that what they say? Creative content. Does he, does he work free? We'd have, we would have to get into a negotiating process. I think. maybe some mugs. Yeah, send him some mugs. Okay, a couple of posters. Yeah, autographed by yours truly, and and also you. Sure, you just sign my name to those. I usually do. Okay, that uh, and on the checks, <laughs> all the checks. Uh, this is interesting. I was thinking about this one. Because I think it's kind of a fun fight, Hector Lombard and Josh Berkman. The People's I, Warrior I think versus Showweather. 
I think it's also a bad deal for Hector Lombard because if you beat Josh Berkman, you, Hector Lombard is kind of at that point where, you know, he is looking good at welterweight. Uh, you feel like he needs one big fight, one big win over somebody to go out there, you know, spike somebody on their head and, and knock him out. And then he's right there in that title conversation. It's hard for me to see any way, no matter how impressive he looks against Josh Berkman, that that's going to be the one. You know, I just don't feel like that that brings enough hype to it, even though, like, Berkman's a tough opponent right now, you know? I mean, it would not mean nothing to go out there and beat Josh Berkman, but I don't see that being the fight that catapults you into a UFC title fight. Yeah, that's definitely the case because, you know, Josh Berkman is one of those guys, like we talked about C.B. Dalloway last week, who I think is regarded as a guy uh, who, who's a known commodity. He's been around for so long that we've seen him in so many fights that uh, we think that we know the best of what he's capable of, and we don't regard him as like a title contender. So I think you're right for Hector Lombard to come out and, and beat Josh Berkman isn't necessarily the going to be the catapult that vaults him into like title contention, except that Hector Lombard has looked like an absolute murderer since coming down to 170 pounds. So I think if there's a chance that he goes out and does something highlight real worthy against Josh Berkman, that could be the kind of thing, uh, that that springboards him or can be like a, a a launching pad for him to kind of get the dialogue going about him again because you know there hasn't there's been like a surprisingly little amount of talk about Hector Lombard I think especially in recent months and obviously part of the the narrative or that at least what we're being told is that nobody wants to fight him right and that's you know probably speaks to how dangerous people think that he is at at this weight uh if that in, indeed is true i would also say for josh berkman while well, it's a hell of an opportunity because if you come in and beat actor lombard uh you're back on the map in the ufc uh it's also one of those fights where man if you're josh berkman you haven't been in the ufc for a few years you've been hanging around fighting in world series of fighting and or something called showdown fights uh, where you beat Jamie Yeager back in 2012. I remember him. Uh, you know, you got wins over Tyler Stinson and John Fitch and Aaron, Aaron Simpson and J Gerald Harris. You lost to Steve Carl in World Series of Fighting. You've been working your ass off essentially to get back to the UFC. You get back into the UFC and they're like, hey, Josh Berkman, why don't you come back in here and fight Hector Lombard? Like, that seems like a tough duty also for a guy who's just coming back into the UFC after a couple years away. It is, but A... I mean, what did you expect? Like that they're a couple of tune-up fights. Yeah, they're man. not they're not looking at you for you know they're not going to give you the Brock Lesnar treatment to let you have a couple easy ones under your belt before they test you. They're going to throw you right back in there right away. And I think it's actually about as good a deal as you can hope for for Josh Berkman because you know he's 34, he's been around for a while, he's been through this before. He doesn't have time to just start slowly and, and try to build up. He needs to go get whatever he can get. And, you know, if you go out there on the undercard and you beat some, some welterweight nobody's ever heard of or, you know, some guy coming off a ultimate fighter season, big deal, man, whatever. You go out there and you beat Hector Lombard, you're back in the hunt, baby. That's, that's, that's as good an opportunity as you're going to get right now at Josh Bergman. That's instant, uh, credibility, instant relevance. If you can go out there and win that fight, I mean, obviously it's a tough fight, but that's why the, the payoff is so big. I mean, it's a, it's a raw deal for Lombard, if anything, because, uh, he has way more to lose in the game. Berkman here, I mean, if you go, even if you go in there and you get beat by Hector Lombard, shit, man, Hector Lombard, he's good. It doesn't mean you get fired the next day. Like you might as well roll the dice here if you're Josh Berkman and, and see what you can do. 
Wow, that's quite a sales pitch. Thank you. I feel like they should have had you call Josh Berkman when they were bringing him back to the UFC and lay that out for him. Listen, Josh, I'm going to spell it out for you, brother. <laughs> Last question this week comes from Winston the Wonder Chimp, huh. who I assume must have broke out of his cage and commandeered a, a computer on the internet well, in order to send us his email. I would say that would be beyond the capabilities of a regular chimp, but a Wonder Chimp. A Wonder Chimp, you never know. Okay. He's not great at sending emails okay but all he's right. great at sending emails for a chimp so that makes <laughs> him a wonder chimp he's always saying like attached you'll find the document and then there, he doesn't he forgets to include the yes, attachment exactly he's always hitting reply all when he's not supposed to damn it winston uh he writes guys which i think is kind of familial for a wonder chimp <laughs> like i would expect him to call us misters folks and dundas but he writes guys now brandon vera pablo garza dennis hallman and javier vasquez have all signed on for additional lawsuits against the ufc Dizcuz with all these this shiz what's really going on it sounds like winston the wonder chimp listens to the damn show yeah i mean his spelling leaves a little bit to be desired but he's a chimp so we're gonna let that slide they probably pipe the audio in as torture just to keep him awake, to not let him sleep. Wait, so he's like a terrorist, too? What, why are we torturing him? Who knows what a wonder chimp is capable of, right. Ben? Fair enough. Let's not underestimate his propensity for evil. Well, and he is obviously very concerned about uh, antitrust law, uh, and as well uh, a wonder chimp should be. But, you know, it does seem like uh, we're getting a little bit of a snowball effect here going on. More fighters jumping onto this lawsuit. You still don't have any huge names. I mean, I guess Brandon Vera... You know, that's somebody. Mm -hmm. that, that's one you want to pay attention to. Um, it, though it is getting to the point where, like, we're reaching enough of a critical mass on it that the we can stop saying, like, oh, it's just a couple of disgruntled guys, right? Like, or haven't we gotten to that now point now? numerous disgruntled now it's guys. It's a bunch of disgruntled <laughs> guys. It's enough to form a street gang of disgruntled guys. And so I think, I mean, I, I hate when people do that thing where they – they point to, oh, well, hey, these guys are out of the UFC and they're, they're sad. They're butthurt about it. And so right. that's why they're going to, cause file everyone this in the UFC is too scared yeah. to be part of the law. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So stop focusing on that and instead kind of focus on the merits of the case. And we were talking about, there was a really interesting thing on ESPN, uh, recently where Brett Akimoto talked to ESPN's, uh, expert legal analyst, basically had him look through the lawsuit, uh, and, and break it down. Yeah, he brought this this Q and A brought up a lot of points that we hadn't that I hadn't seen brought up before. So right. if you haven't seen it, go find it. It's it's worth your time to to read it to increase your your understanding of how these things could work. Because God knows I need the cliff notes. So uh, yes, absolutely. I would, I would recommend everybody who's interested go out and and read this. Um, you know, it, it had turned out earlier in the week when uh Dennis Hallman and and uh, uh, Javier Vasquez I think filed one lawsuit, and then Brandon Vera and. Uh, Pablo Garza. Pablo Garza, I think, filed another one. And, and I hadn't realized this, but apparently this is like a strategy, right, in filing yes. class action lawsuits because if one of the lawsuits gets uh, certified as a class action lawsuit, they may all be bundled together at a later date. But uh, there was some theorizing, I think, on Bloody Elbows where I read this, that this was a way to perhaps get multiple lawsuits in front of multiple judges just to give you a better chance of moving past the initial uh, dismissal phase. Yes. Where, like, if one judge doesn't like the lawsuit I, and maybe dismisses it, maybe another judge will see a different lawsuit and, and you know, approve it or dismi dismiss the uh, the motion to dismiss, I guess you would say. And yeah. then they can all be bundled together. But but it's crafty, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's a crafty move. As a legal analyst Lester Munson notes in this uh, this ESPN conversation with Brett Akimoto, 
uh, quote, antitrust litigation is typically a war of attrition. Uh, and as everybody says, which is you know, also what Jeff Blatnick would say to describe it back <laughs> in the early days of the UFC. And he might describe somebody as getting frustrated yeah, when things weren't going their way. Uh, but yeah, so everybody keeps saying this is going to take a while. Don't expect any kind of speedy resolution in this. Uh, one of the things that he says in this uh, conversation that I was surprised to hear um, was that one of the things that could be a problem for the UFC is its use of counter-programming its competitors, which maybe we're just all so used to the MMA bubble, but that that's something that we just think of now as just standard. Like, that's just what you're going to do to another MMA promotion is, you yeah. know, completely I mean, invent, a, like, new events just to counter-program their shit. Maybe right. even go down the road from them if you can. I would think, you know, inside the bubble, that seems like one of the least egregious things that yeah. goes on, right? Yeah, we just assume that you're going to do that if you if you if if it's at all possible. Like, that's the sign that you're becoming a serious competitor is the UFC bothers to counter-program you. But he says here... uh the counter-programming is particularly egregious. It demonstrates the power of the monopoly and it causes damage to smaller businesses of the kind antitrust laws were designed to protect. If I were one of the attorneys on the UFC side, I would be worried about the counter-programming. Yeah, that's interesting. That's not something that I would have expected. Uh, there's other stuff in this, in this same Q&A kind of about how if the UFC does have to turn over its financial information, uh, it could ask for a gag order that uh, maybe that information wouldn't become public, uh, which I think would be kind of a bummer for everyone who's been in the trenches slugging it out for years trying to figure out exactly what that financial information is. But he also seemed to indicate that like uh, media sources could fight against that gag order, which yeah. I thought was an interesting point. Well, and also the, you know, we've seen it brought up in the lawsuit, like the pictures of Dana White holding up the tombstone with the other promotions that he's kind of run out of business on there and just kind of being proudly chest thumping about uh, the size of the UFC and that the the power of the UFC over the entire industry and that you know the plaintiffs now trying to use those boasts against uh, the UFC and we were also noting that it seems like you know maybe not a coincidence that Dana White has stepped back from doing a lot of those media scrums and being available to the press you know when the lawsuit is announced he's often Fiji surfing or something you know he's not he's not doing those scrums after press conferences anymore he's oftentimes not even going to the press conference so it kind of seems like maybe uh citing or seeing the possibility that this could be a weakness they've kind of put dana white uh in the background a little more but you know it seemed like one of those things at first when i saw it like you're not going to decide a lawsuit based on a guy a promoter bragging because that's what promoters do right um but then this statement the plaintiffs will certainly try to use white's statements against him his assertion that quote, we're the NFL, there is no other guy, can be powerful evidence in support of the plaintiff's claims the UFC is a cartel. UFC lawyers will argue the statements were made as a marketing ploy and part of a macho sales campaign. In the O'Banion versus NCAA trial, admissions like this were instrumental in the player's victory. An NCAA official, Wally Renfro, admitted that, quote, the notion that athletes are students is the great hypocrisy of intercollegiate sports. So, that kind of stuff, it seems, can actually have a bearing on uh, the the case itself, which I think would be really interesting because if you start mining Dana White's past claims uh, for uh, you know some some grandiose statements about how big and powerful the UFC is, you're going to find a lot there. Yeah, I also find it interesting for in all of these like legal legal anal analysis pieces that we've seen come out from SI and ESPN, uh, you know, all of them take pains to kind of. Uh, point out that maybe what the UFC is doing is not illegal. But while they're doing that, like to a man, the legal analysts are kind of like, but it is a dick move. Like they all kind of say that. <laughs> well, the yeah. Well, and this one says that at several points, you know, 
this stuff might be technically legal. You might be able to get by with this stuff, but you would hate to have to explain yourself to a jury. It yeah. would not, it would not look good for you to have to explain this stuff that while it might be technically legal, doesn't garner you much sympathy. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or comment or concern that you want the co-main event podcast to weigh in on in 2015, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, they're finally going to do the damn thing this Saturday night. Knock on wood, barring late-breaking injury. Jonathan Dwight Jones and Daniel Ryan Cormier, or as we would say here in Montana, Cormier, are going to get together and finally fight for the UFC light heavyweight title. Uh, this is the one we've all been waiting for. This is the fight that I feel like might remind us that it's all worthwhile. Yeah. This is the one where when they do the thing beforehand where they stand there and scream at each other about how huge this fight is and how excited people are for it uh, and how great it's going to be, it's actually true. Let me tee you up with this question to start off. Is this the greatest matchup in UFC history? Whoa. Yeah, big time. We're, we're taking on the big issues this week. We're um, not shying away from the big questions. I don't know. I, it could be one of those things where, hey, if John Jones goes out there and absolutely smokes Daniel Cormier, uh, people won't remember it that way, and a lot of people will claim that they called it. Uh, but right now, it feels like it has that rare blend of like a genuine personal element to it, which we always enjoy, even though we kind of have to feel a little bit weird about that, um, and also a, the athletic element where it's like. Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz if Tito Ortiz had seemed more competitive. Right, yeah. See, I'm inclined to say that it is the greatest matchup in UFC history once you roll all of the many factors together because it has the kind of marquee star quality that I think the the UFC light heavyweight division had during its formative years when you had feuds between guys like Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell and, and Tito Ortiz and Tito Ortiz and Randy Couture and that, you know, uh, the, the menage a trois of, uh, of feuds that we had going on with those guys. Just totally going to forget about Tito Ortiz, Elvis Sinisek, huh? No, yeah, that's the, fine. The that's king, cool. The king of rock and rumble. That <laughs> was right. also one for the ages. Uh, you know, it has that aspect, and it also has the aspect that both these guys come into this fight uh, with essentially unblemished records. Uh, Daniel Cormier officially undefeated. John Jones, as the UFC will not stop reminding us, has the one loss on his record that, that we're, we've all decided to heap at the feet of, of Steve Mazzagotti. As Basically if, undefeated. As if he didn't have enough to worry about. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, you've got the idea that John Jones up to this point has seemed like an, an unbeatable champion with the one exception of the close fight that he had against Alexander Gustafson. Uh, but now you've got Daniel Cormier, who seemed like a handful for everyone at heavyweight. And if he was not best friends with the guy who was UFC heavyweight champion, seemed like 
he would be on the short list of guys who could become UFC heavyweight champion coming down to 205 pounds uh, to try his luck there. So it's it's to be honest with you, as far as I'm concerned, even though, you know, this this fight probably isn't going to set any pay-per-view records. I assume it'll be a, a reasonably good seller for the UFC, but we don't expect it to, you know, to get up there uh, among the best sellers of all time. But I feel like for the hardcore MMA fan, it doesn't get much better than this matchup. No, I mean, again, we don't know exactly how it's going to go. We are committing the Dana White sin of talking about the fights before they happen. But we're allowed to do that as long as it's positive. Oh, that's man. right. I if it's that. negative, then then we're being assholes. But yeah. as long as we're trying to pump things up, then you can say whatever you want before the fight. Yeah. Well, you know, and this one, it feels like uh, this is the promise of the new day, right? In 2015, like it's it's really fitting to start us off with this fight because this is this is a huge one that we've been waiting for for a while. And you know, when Dana White is saying there with Joe Rogan saying we're back. It's fights like this that he's pointing to. And I mean, this is the one. I mean, I think that like what's happened now is so many fans have kind of drifted away from the sport that you need a louder and louder call to bring them back. Uh, and this is the one that I think is going to bring a lot of people back uh, that, you know, all right, let's come back over. Let's let's see what you got. Uh, let's remember when we used to be huge MMA fans who would never miss a UFC pay-per-view. This is the kind of lineup that you can't really ignore. So. I do think like this has the potential to be really huge. I still feel like when you're sitting there looking at these two and trying to pick a winner, it's tough, man. Like there's no way like anybody who's like, I tell you, I guarantee you this is what happens is bullshitting because you don't know. You just, you you have no idea what's going to happen in this one. Yeah. And the, I, I, yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and I think that the people, there are people who are saying, who are saying that they think Jones will end up handling Daniel Cormier relatively easily. But I think you, you only get there if you just look at the physical dimensions, right? Like one of the, one of the knocks against Daniel Cormier coming into this fight is whether or not he's going to be big enough and have the, you know, be able to contend with the unbelievable reach advantage that John Jones is going to have. And I would say that's, that's, you know, one of my, my, one of my only worries here about the competitiveness of this fight. John Jones is so big. He's a guy who essentially could be a heavyweight right now if he wanted to be. Uh, Daniel Cormier is, is, you know, not a physically imposing guy, uh, in terms of sheer physicality. And he is going to have to find a way to maybe get past that reach that John Jones has used, uh, to his advantage, especially, I think, in, in his most recent fights. I feel like you've started to see that, uh, that, you know, the reach become a bigger factor. Um, For eye pokes, you mean? Yes, exactly. But, you know, there's then there's another element, right? Like, we talk about his most recent fights. Like, for instance, Glover Teixeira, where John Jones decides he wants to fight him in the clinch, um, which seems like... That would have been the nicest thing you could do for Glover Teixeira, if you'd asked me beforehand, would right. be like to go ahead and eliminate that that distance element and just get in close where he likes to to uh, fight. And that John Jones ends up beating him up there, or like where he goes up against Chael Sonnen and decides like, all right, I'm just going to take him down and elbow him in the face, which is Chael Sonnen's only strategy for every single fight he's ever had. So. Uh, I mean, this idea that John Jones, and he's said it, you know, he's kind of throwing it out there that he likes to go after people at their strengths. Right. Um, hey, Daniel Cormier is a wrestler. He's supposed to be this great Olympic wrestler. Let me go out there and, and out-wrestle him. I never know. Like, on one hand, it seems like gamesmanship, right? Like, seems like you're fucking with the guy before the fight. But also, if you look at what John Jones actually does... He does do that to people a lot. Yeah. It also does. seems like you, you're going to do that to the wrong person every once in a while and uh, get yourself in a lot of trouble. And then afterwards, everybody will wonder what the hell you were thinking. Yeah, we haven't seen that kind of stuff bite him in the ass much so far. He's been good enough to to be able to pull it off. And, and he's been good enough to where most of the kind of like creative, risky 
uh, flashy moves that he does in the cage have not come back to haunt him yet. You would think that Daniel Cormier is going to be one of the tougher guys that he's fought to date, maybe the toughest guy that he's fought, hopefully the toughest guy that he's fought, I think, because it has the, the makings of an amazing matchup. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if John Jones really does that. I actually... Um, I have a feature coming out on, on Bleacher Report this week about Brandon, about Brandon Gibson, uh, John, oh, yeah. John Jones' striking coach and, and the Six guy. Six Gun Gibson. Yeah, the guy that he is, that John Jones seems to be closest with in that Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn, uh, camp. And I, I talked to Brandon Gibson this past week. He's an interesting guy to talk to. One of the more interesting MMA interviews that I've done in a while. You can totally see how he and John Jones are two peas in a pod because, you know, one of Brandon Gibson's big things is kind of like the psychological aspect of, of the fight game. Uh, he, he has kind of a Phil Jackson thing going on where he likes to give people motivational quotes and like pieces of music or books that he feels like could, could help them out. Uh, one of the interesting things that, that he told me when I was talking to him last week is that this, this fight camp for John Jones to him has reminded him a little bit of, of Rashad Evans because there was so much personal animosity built up. Uh, and I think that everyone over there at, at Greg Jackson's believes that that's the kind of matchup that brings out the best in John Jones. Uh, and when I asked Brandon Gibson what he thought John Jones's best performance was since they've been, you know, working together. He said Rashad Evans because they had done so much preparation and he feels like that, that he said there were undercurrents of the same kind of feeling in the Jones camp for leading up to Cormier, uh, as, as there were leading up to Evans. So I think that they fully expect their guy, uh, is going to be ready to go. You know, I was thinking, you know who the big winner is if John Jones goes out there and absolutely handles Daniel Cormier? Alexander Gustafson. Because then people are going to look back and be like, man, this guy is awesome. He he beat up the top contender in the division, the guy that we were all really excited about seeing him fight, this Olympic wrestler, and John Jones just went out there and smashed him. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't Alexander Gustafson give him the fight of his damn life? Uh, let's see that one. Let's run that one back again, assuming Gustafson can get by Rumble Johnson. You know, that it has the real potential to uh, to make us look back on fights like that one with a completely different eye. Yeah, it does. And I mean, we've talked about this before. If you talk to the people at, at Jackson, like nobody kind of wants to put their name on it, but they'll right. all sort of indicate that Jones was maybe taking it a little bit too easy during his fight camp leading up to Gustafson. Yeah. A phrase I heard tossed around was he didn't train shit for that fight. Yeah, so I think that that's one that they want back too. I wouldn't, you know, yeah. that, that's another fight that they, that they I think want to put John Jones through again. Uh, but man, the 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 elephant in the room in that you know situation is Anthony Johnson because he's looked incredible since he's been back in the UFC and uh, you know I don't think anybody's going to argue with a. Uh, uh, an Anthony Johnson, Alexander Gustafson fight. Whoever wins that is is certainly your number one contender for whoever wins this weekend. Yeah, assuming that uh, whoever wins that can stay out of jail. Yeah, or, or there no nobody's injured. Let's do. Uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, this week my are you fucking kidding me is John Jones, Daniel Cormier related. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and kick it off. Um, you know, obviously, as we spent the last 10 minutes talking about, this is one of the biggest fights in UFC history. And so I thought it was hashtag, are you fucking kidding me, worthy that the UFC responded by breaking out taglines like bad blood and bitter rivals, both for this fight, uh, both of which are taglines that the UFC has used before. The Fox Sports 
a documentary this past week about the John Jones Daniel Cormier feud was called Bad Blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look it up on the internet, you will find that the UFC previously produced a documentary about the feud between Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz called Bad Blood. Huh. How about that? If you look back in your history books, you'll also find out that UFC 61 was taglined Bitter Rivals. So, are you fucking kidding me, UFC? It kind of feels like you're taking the biggest fight you've had in a long time. Not really trying that hard to come up with some original taglines to sell it. Well, come on. That's why they had to stop doing taglines uh, for every event, right? Because you just you run out of tag. Like, you get to a point where there you have are, to choose between either or There are an infinite re- amount of taglines. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not an infinite amount of good taglines. Like, you get to the point where you have to choose between doing ridiculous taglines or recycling old ones. And I think, you know, given those choices, might be the right choice. Uh, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week goes out to... The report that uh, hackers have hacked UFC Fight Pass, among Gasp. other among other internet entities like Xbox Live and stuff like that. Uh, and basically, all you people who you signed up for Fight Pass to get the free trial or whatever, and you had to give your credit card information anyway, or you signed up for a Fight Pass subscription and then canceled it, or you still have a Fight Pass subscription, doesn't matter. Uh, because once you give them your information at all, the UFC banks all that stuff. Uh, and so your stuff is out there now. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Uh, also, didn't didn't somebody bring up before? Was it somebody I think uh, on Bloody Elbow brought up before that the the security measures for Fight Pass, the way they were you know not encoding passwords was uh, was already a security problem, and that the UFC has already been hacked before, and now stuff like this, which seems like kind of you know should have been at least somewhat preventable, or you could have done steps to to make it a little harder for you know hackers to get my personal credit card information, Chad. Man, I already had to get a new credit card after I shopped at Home Depot and Wells Fargo was just like, you know what, screw this business, you were probably hacked. Here's a new one. Am I just going to have to go through this all over again because I just had to watch Leota Machida fight in Germany at like 9 in the morning or something? Yes, over and over again for the rest of our lives. Are you fucking kidding me? It is disquieting that there is no way to delete your profile on Fight Pass once you've signed up, that they just sort of warehouse your credit card information. Uh, so that puts all of us at risk. Yes, it does. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, not to be cocky, but I think I have a pretty great segue to start off round two. Wow. Okay. Let's hear it. Or wait, was that it? That was it. Oh, I guess that was pretty good. Yeah. Subtle. Yeah. I didn't want to be cocky, but it felt like it was really easy to deliver that segue just now to talk about Miles Jury and Donald Cerrone going at it in the co-main event of UFC 182. Now, here's one of those fights where I feel like uh, we're really going to learn some shit uh, one way or another. Because Miles Jury, you look at this guy, he's undefeated. He He's beat a couple uh, aging legends, guys like Diego Sanchez and uh, Takanori Gomi, where, at least for MMA terms, it seems like uh, the man has sort of outlived the name. Uh, they weren't the, the people that they used to be by the time that he got around to beating them. Now he's going to fight a big-name fighter who seems like he's, you know, if not in his prime, then within kicking distance of it. And has been hurting some people every once in a while when he when he feels it. 
Is this going to be one of the things where Donald Cerrone shows up basically at the end slash beginning of a year looking like he's tired and worn out from fighting so damn much? Um, or is this going to be one of the ones where uh, a young guy beats up the older guy and jumps in there to take his place? Uh, well, I mean, I guess you do at some point have to start worrying about fatigue in Donald Cerrone's case, just that this will be his sixth fight dating back to November of 2013. Uh, he's won all those, so I ain't that worried so far, but we'll see how things go against Miles Jury. Uh, and this has been a good stretch for Donald Cerrone where you feel like he's kind of finally put together, uh, the, all of the skills and, and the, the, um, you know, the ability that you, you felt that he always had when he came into the UFC from, from the WEC, even though he went three and three in his previous six fights. Uh, but, but, you know, he seems to be cruising on, on firing on all cylinders right now. And he's definitely tapped into the perfect storm of marketability in the MMA landscape. What with his cowboy hat and Check. his, I'll fight anyone, anytime, any day, anywhere mentality. Check. And his, his Budweiser sponsorship. Love of beer. Check. And, and his just sort of, uh, the fact that he's going to go at everything like a rodeo cowboy. Are you not even going to mention even his, even give a shit. Not even going to mention his awesome lake tan that he seems to keep up year round, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, I does do, does water sports. Is that a, is there a crossover there with UFC fan base? I assume so. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the thing to me is it seems like you look at Miles Jury and like on paper, that guy should be way more popular or at least way more known. Right. Um, and he's definitely not like for one thing, I think that he seems to come off, uh, I don't know, a little, a little bro-ish maybe? A little too much like, uh, the, the dude hanging around like some frat house who everybody has to admit is a really good fighter, but they don't really have to like him very much. Like the, you know, talking about how he didn't want to be cocky about how these guys are so easy to beat or beating up, uh, Gomi in Japan and then yelling out how he's going to go get some sushi and sake and really expecting the crowd to rally behind that when they all just kind of stared numbly at him instead. So some of that I think is personality based. Some of it is probably it's a pretty crowded division, uh, and it's tough to stand out. Plus, when you're fighting on events like a, a fight pass event in Japan uh, against Takanori Gomi, not all the fight fans are going to see that one. So you you have a hard time just kind of getting seen. But this one, here you are. You got the the biggest event in months. Uh, and you're the co-main event of it against a fan favorite. You go out there and you beat Donald Cerrone. People have to take notice. Like, is that title fight worthy kind of stuff there yeah and i think i guess my guess would be that that the perception of miles jury is the same perception that we poke gentle fun at on this podcast right that he is a little bit broish and he has had some high profile instances where he seemed uh cocky for lack of a better word you know when he said he didn't want to be cocky yeah it's like saying i'm not a racist but you're but about to say something racist. He's also, you know, he comes, he came out of the Ultimate Fighter on like season 12 or season 13, something like that, uh, when it was at the height of its like f- factory assembly yeah. line. Forgettability. We, we are churning out UFC fighters at an unbelievable rate of speed. <laughs> yes. uh, so it's, so I think it was easy to kind of shortchange him as just another one of those guys for a long time. He's only been in the UFC for, for like two years. Uh, as it is, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that the Diego Sanchez and the Takanori Gomi fights were his first two real UFC ca- uh, fights that were on main cards. Like, I think he was kind of a prelim fighter before then. So even though, even though, uh, he is 15 and 0 and, and he's kind of coming into his own, he's definitely a guy who still, 
uh, you know, could use a higher profile. And I think you're right to say that Donald Cerrone is the kind of guy where if he goes out there and beats him, then everyone's going to have to take notice. And I think it, you know, it, it deserves to be said that Miles Jury could totally beat Donald Cerrone if everything goes right for him on fight night. Like Donald Cerrone, kind of a notoriously slow starter. Uh, we've seen him struggle with guys that come out and get in his face sometimes in the past. And so it'll be interesting to see how Miles Jury handles that. Uh, I'll just say that. According to the official odds, Miles Jury going off as almost a two to one underdog, uh, which is uh, kind of surprising as far as I'm concerned. I think it's a little bit closer than that. Um, first of all, in, in fairness, you say that you know he wasn't on main cards before uh, the last two fights. Uh, he was the featured prelim uh, against Mike Ricci at UFC 165. So. Yeah, it's not a thing. <laughs> also, you talk about how sometimes Donald Cerrone doesn't do great against guys who come right out and get in his face. I don't see Miles Jury being that kind of a guy here. Like, he seems to really pride himself on his defense and on not getting hit. And that's why I think it's a really interesting style matchup. Yeah. It's because Donald Cerrone wants to get in there and just buzzsaw you, just start chopping away at you, uh, until you go down and you just kind of, kind of, can't keep that pressure up, which is basically what happened uh, when he fought Eddie Alvarez, it seemed, and, and also helped that he seemed a lot bigger than Eddie Alvarez. Uh, but Miles Jury is the guy where uh, the problem other guys have had is that while they're out there just trying to find him, he's hitting away at them and not necessarily totally overwhelming them, but like he can hit you and he can hurt you, and he's not going to be just standing there waiting to trade blows with you, which, uh, I mean, that seems like the kind of fight Donald Cerrone would like. I guess it's a question of whether the the opposite is something that will frustrate him enough. I mean, to hear Cerrone tell it, he thinks like, yeah, this guy has a couple wins over some dudes who uh, were, were past their expiration date, and he's going to get in there with me, and he's going to realize that there's a whole different level that he hasn't glimpsed yet. I could see that happening. I could also see it being one of those things where Donald Cerrone shows up, and since he fights so goddamn much, just doesn't quite have it that night. Either one seems completely plausible to me. Yeah, we've talked about that in the past, that that's sort of like both the blessing and the curse of Donald Cerrone's personal style, is that it makes him super popular, he makes lots of money, it keeps him, uh, you know, he works all the time, and so he's always sharp, but at the same time... Man, I don't know that anybody in the world could fight as often as he does in the UFC lightweight division and not take a loss every once in a while. That's just kind of the, the nature of the beast. It's the, you know, it's the shark tank of, of the mixed martial arts world. So you kind of feel like if he keeps up that pace, eventually somebody's going to beat him. Uh, and it could well be Miles Jury this weekend. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the situation at large in the lightweight division because it's kind of interesting stuff going on down there now. We finally got pretty Tony Pettis back and healthy, at least for the time being, and he just is coming off an impressive title defense against Gilbert Melendez. We think Rafael Dos Anjos might well be next, uh, but some of that seems to be kind of riding on the health of Habib Nurmagomedov, who still is uh, rehabbing from knee surgery, so we don't really know what's going on there. Assuming that Rafael Dos Anjos is next. Uh, this is kind of an interesting fight to have because, you know, you've got Donald Cerrone and Miles Jury both in the top 10. And then the other guys in the top 10, uh, aside from Melendez, Nurmagomedov, and Dos Anjos, are guys like Benson Henderson, who you don't think is going to get a title to shot anytime soon. Edson Barbosa, who's probably not you know, knocking on the door. And, Gilbert Melendez, who just had right, one. Just had one. And then Josh Thompson, who, who's a guy who's kind of still trying to put it back together. So like, 
is this a number one contender fight for either guy, or is it only a number one contender fight if Donald Cerrone wins? You know, that's a good question, and I think a lot of it will depend on, like, what is it? what would it mean right now to be named, like, if we, if we acknowledge that Rafael Dos Anjos is probably next, what would it mean if, for the UFC, for somebody like Miles Jury? Like, he, talking to Miles Jury, he says if he wins, he plans to get on the mic with Joe Rogan, and when Joe Rogan says, what's next for you to say, title shot, give me my title shot, I've earned it. Now, you say he goes out there and he knocks out Donald Cerrone. Looks awesome doing it. Um, doesn't say anything too terribly douchey, um, but says, I think I deserve a title shot. That's what I want next. We've all acknowledged that Dos Anjos is the next in line there. So then what do you do with that guy? Like, I mean, especially if the Pettis-Dos Anjos fight might not happen for a little while, and then who knows if Pettis will stay healthy, and then who knows what Nermi situation will be. Like, Telling somebody right now that they're the number one contender in the lightweight division is like when you tell your high school girlfriend that you're going to marry her someday. Like, that's just, that's just talking, man. That's just talking about things that might happen and, and might be a terrible idea. So I, I mean, no matter what they tell you right now, it's a, it's a situation where there's enough people close enough to the top and enough doubts about who's going to be healthy and when. And the schedule just kind of demands a certain amount of title defenses that, Man, you could you could be Miles Jury and win this fight, and then just by virtue of being healthy when they need you to be healthy, you could get a shot. You right. could get the next crack of the title. Who knows? Yeah, and I guess that just kind of speaks to the under unpredictable nature of things. You get the impression that no matter what, whoever wins this fight will be nominally referred to as a number one contender. That like uh, someone will say that he gets the next title shot yeah. because that seems to happen after every big win in the lightweight division. But again, a lot of it is going to come down to. Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov and whether or not he's because when he gets healthy, do you just stick him straight into the to a fight against the winner of Dos Anjos and Pettis, or does he need a fight to get to get himself back against the winner of this fight? Or a lot of things could still happen. They could, and, but that's going to do it for our discussion of Donald Cerrone, Miles Jury in round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, not to once again get too hyperbolic on this show, but last week I think I mentioned uh, sort of facetiously and in, in passing the idea that maybe 2014 was the worst year ever in mixed martial arts. Uh, the, during this round, I guess we're going to talk a little bit about the, the things that transpired in 2014 and maybe uh, our hopes, dreams, and fears for 2015. But, like, was this the worst year in MMA history? Because for me it's hard to think of another year where there was such a range of bad news that all happened kind of at once. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe the worst year in modern MMA history, if we kind of like separate out the the MMA eras, uh, because there were some rough goes there at the beginning, years where like you couldn't get on pay-per-view and it looked like this thing might just be extinct any day. Um, and so, you know, you, that's the... You know, the, the way back in the, the primordial ooze phase. Now that we, I feel like then we went through like a couple different periods and the fastest growing sport in the world phase. I feel like that has just ended. And now we're kind of looking at like, okay, so where are we? Like now that enough people worldwide have been exposed to this thing and had a chance to, to realize what it is and figure out if they're going to be fans of it or not. Um, where do we sit? And I think this was one of those years where 
we saw kind of the the limits of the UFC's global ambition. Uh, we saw what what can come of that, and it wasn't all good stuff. I mean, and and I think that you can make a couple different arguments in that. And in some senses, like yeah, if you want to grow, like as a company, I can see why you feel like you need new markets, new fans. You you can't just keep selling like a slightly better product to the same people over and over again and expect to make huge gains as a company then again i don't know how much any of us should really care about the ufc's uh financial statements at the end of the year we want to see a really good sport we want to see a good product like that's that's where our interest lies and in that regard you can't say 2014 was a great year i mean we saw some great fights but also for those of us who have to watch absolutely everything that the ufc puts out we saw a whole lot of filler um, and just kind of a troubling strategy moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the most interesting thing about 2015 is that the schedule isn't really going to let up. They're they're going to try to do just as many events next year in, in I think, 46 as they did this year, which was either 46 or 47. You know, I can't remember which 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 it was, but like it's it's, you know, 2015 figures to have a very similar feel. So I think that. One of the most interesting things about this coming year will be to figure out if all this stuff still feels like filler, if the UFC is able to have slightly better luck with injuries. Um, because obviously headed out of 2014, one of the, the major narratives is like, oh man, we just had such bad luck with, with injuries. You know what I mean? Uh, but the truth is like we just had a terrible 2012 also with injuries. Right. So, you well, know, it remains to be seen if like just having all of your champions injured and, and kind of suffering through all of these injuries again and again is just going to be the norm of, you know, mixed martial arts promotion. So, you know, if you manage to keep your guys healthy, is a lot of this going to feel like drudgery anyway? And if you can't keep them healthy, that's sort of an answer in and of itself. Well, and also the idea that like, hey, we it was just bad luck with injuries, man. Like, like, what can we do? It wasn't it wasn't a bad business plan. It wasn't a bad approach or, or bad matchmaking or, or bad structuring of the cards. It was just that we couldn't catch a break when it came to injuries. Well, if that's the case, then why would you expect that 2015 would necessarily be different? Like, why would the you know having to go to the mall and buy a new calendar suddenly mean that everything about the nature of the sport and how people train and prepare changes? Like, the the year doesn't really matter for that sense. Like, if if it's a problem with guys either just doing the wrong things uh, in the gym and getting themselves hurt or just, you know, that it just keeps working out that way, there's no reason that that just gets wiped clean just because there's a new year. Like, that is kind of a, a childish hope, I think. <laughs> uh, but then again, you look at – like, look at January, right? Like, January 2015 where I think there were, what, five weekends in, in January – and four of them have UFC events, which would seem on its face to be the kind of oversaturation we're complaining about. And yet those events are UFC 182 with Jones Cormier, which seems like it's going to be awesome. Uh, and then, you know, uh, they take the next weekend off. And then January 18th, uh, Conor McGregor and Dennis Seaver, uh, in the, uh, the show from, from Boston. Uh, then you go to, to, uh, Sweden the next weekend for Alexander Gustafsson and uh, Rumble Johnson. And then you come back to Vegas for Anderson Silva and Nick Diaz. I mean, that's an awesome month. Like, that's a, like assuming all those fights hold together, that's an awesome lineup. Uh, that suggests that, like, it's not necessarily that they just don't have enough fighters and fights to fill the schedule. That it's just that they've stretched it so thin that uh, they can't afford for anything to go wrong. And if everything does go right and January plays out like that, it'll seem awesome. Um, but you ha also have built like, you know, it's like 
that thing uh the the hardcore history guys used to say about the people structuring like World War One battle plans, which is like they built up this stuff so that if everything went absolutely according to plan, it would be awesome. And if even one thing went wrong, it would be disastrous. And I think that's the problem you get into with such an ambitious schedule. Yeah, um and like you said, you look at January and there's a lot of shows, but they all look look awesome and it's hard to believe that you know, if it plays out like it's supposed to, that any of that would feel like a chore. It all seems fairly exciting from where, from where I'm at for right now. So I guess the, the most interesting thing about 2015 is going to see how that develops into February, March, April. Like, are we going to be able to keep this, like, embarrassing avalanche of awesome fights going? Or at some point, does it kind of grind to a halt and we realize, oh, wait, this just is way too much UFC slash MMA. Uh, and, and then, you know, how do we get through 2015 and what does the schedule look like moving into 2016? Um, and I think, you know, Bellator is going to be an interesting thing to watch also because while the UFC comes out and is going to do 46 events again in 2015, Bellator is kind of scaling back. Their first show of the year, I believe, is also in January and they're going to give us one of the Pitbull brothers against Daniel Strauss, I think is the main event, uh, for, for its, its January show. I hope that's on the poster. One of the Pitbull brothers versus Daniel Strauss, I think. It could be either one. It doesn't really matter anymore. They're like child actors. You know, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta hire twins so you can interchange them so you can get a whole day of filming in. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with a Scott Coker led Bellator because while the UFC continues to hammer us once every, you know, every single weekend, Bellator is going to slip in there once a month and offer, offer us like a reasonably entertaining, quasi interesting fight card. Is that going to be enough to kind of draw eyes over to Spike TV, assuming that they don't land some kind of big fish like Brock Lesnar? Yeah. I mean, this also seems like if we're looking at, you know, what we saw in 2014 and, and what we'd like to see in 2015, I feel like one of the the big problems is not only that the number of events causes a, a kind of like interest drift on the part of some fans where they just get used to skipping a UFC event and the next thing you know they're not they don't know who is where in the standings they don't they're not familiar with the people coming up because they just don't have the time or, or the interest level to follow all of it because there's just so much of it. I also feel like this is one where we're going to find out how responsive the UFC can be to a crisis or just to like trouble. You know, you talked before, what was your, your battleship analogy where it takes so long to turn the battleship and yeah, but you made fun of me and yeah. I see you, I guess I, know, I was, was supposed to say aircraft carrier. It was a pleasing image. Uh, I, you know, imagining Dana White, like whittling a pipe while he's commanding people to hoist some sails or something. Uh, but, I, I do think that this is going to be one of those years where we learn a lot about the UFC's ability to to adjust to what's going on. Because you see stuff like uh, the pace of events not really slackening and you're wondering, like, are you are you hearing us? Are you hearing people who are saying that maybe this is a problem? Or has the UFC just gotten so used to the fuck you, don't watch if you don't like it mentality that they don't know how anymore to be responsive to their fans. Because I feel like there was a time when that was one of the USC's great strengths, uh, especially as opposed to other major sports leagues, was that being a little bit smaller and having a little bit more of a niche audience, it was better at determining, like, what are people into, what are they not into, um, and let's let's recalibrate here to, to get them what they want. But then again, if they sign CM Punk and Rampage Jackson and we're all totally into it, like a bunch of people watch... Um, maybe we're just sending the message like, yeah, no, you, you know who we are, even if we don't want to believe that we are those people. 
Yeah, one way or another, I think 2015 is going to turn out to be kind of a make or break year for the UFC. I think by the end of this calendar year, we're going to have some answers one way or another. Uh, and, and, you know, no matter what you think, I think that you have to concede that heading out of 2014, uh, no matter what you, you, no matter where you place the blame, the UFC has sort of lost the, the feeling that it used to have of being event viewing. Like the kind of thing that you would have, you would, you'd look forward to all month. You would know the date of the fights. You would know everyone who was fighting and you would not miss it. Right. And that feeling is gone. And maybe the biggest question for 2015 is, can the UFC get that feeling back when it is going to charge forward? With the, you know, 46 shows again in, in, in 2015. And if it can't, well, you know, what then? So I think we're going to figure that out this year. And there's a lot of interesting stuff hanging over the UFC's head this year. Uh, hard charging Bellator challenge, maybe, uh, the class action lawsuit, maybe the, uh, the, the pledge that it's going to ramp up its own drug testing during 2015. Uh, the rumors that there's an opt out clause in the Fox deal that may come up uh, at the end of 2015. So a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Uh, and, you know, a lot of stuff that, frankly, makes it it seem kind of exciting to stick around and see what happens in the next 365, 364 days. Uh, anyway. Is it a leap year? Is it? I see. I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. I thought the way you, you phrased that, I thought you knew something there. I don't. I don't know anything. That's we should We should know that by now. Well, it's embarrassing to be here sitting here and, and admit we don't even know whether it's a leap year. You've embarrassed us both. What's your just saying stuff for this week? <laughs> okay. Then we'll get out of here. My just saying stuff, Chad, I'm sure you heard this big news. Um, Bellator ring girl Jade Bryce, super sad to announce that she is no longer with Bellator. Oh, man, I hadn't heard that. That's terrible news. Um, from her uh, post about the situation, Bellator has chosen to go in a different direction for the new year. Wow, taller, shorter? Like, what's the different direction? Dudes? Like, what's going on? I'm just saying, I I don't know what that means for MMA ring girls situation. What what could a different direction possibly be? Does she mean literally, like they will they will walk in the other direction around the cage? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Uh, puppy dogs? Just saying. I um, don't know. How about how about this? A golden retriever circles the cage with the the number of the round like on its collar, like basically dangling off its collar, and then when he makes it all the way around, he catches a frisbee. You can't tell me people wouldn't be into that shit. That would be a better alternative, I think, all and, the way and around. And that, see, now if that happens, then I will admit she's right. That is a different direction. Ben, uh, I know you saw it because it was all over the en- the internet, the UFC magazine hashtag the time is now cover that's going around. Uh, not. UFC magazine cover with some of the UFC's biggest stars on there. You got Anderson Silva. Uh, Ronda Rousey, Chris Weidman, Conor McGregor, Anthony Johnson, Alexander Gustafson, Daniel Cormier, Vitor Belfort, Nick Diaz. Oh, and Dennis Seaver also got himself under the cover of UFC magazine. So I'm just saying, what are the chances that Dennis Seaver just kind of showed up to the photo shoot and nobody had the heart to tell him that they didn't need him for that? Just sort of like, you know. The photographer is taking photos, and he's like, okay, hey, looks great, everybody. Uh, Let's try a few without Dennis Seaver. Dennis, <laughs> could you just step off to the – no? Okay, I guess we'll just keep we'll just keep shooting. Maybe they – Americans only. How about Americans only out there? No, you too, Gustafson. We want you in there. 
And Anderson, yeah. Uh, maybe it was like an intern's job to watch Dennis Seaver, uh, and like kind of, kind of keep an eye on him and wrangle him a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, the intern got distracted posting on Tumblr or whatever the kids are into. Uh, and next thing you know, oh, damn it. You look up. How did Dennis Seaver get in this picture? He was your responsibility, intern. He's going to get up to mischief if you don't keep an eye on him. You know what though? That's something they can never take away from Dennis Seaver. Dennis Seaver, UFC magazine cover boy. <laughs> He'll have that forever. I'm there just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 182. That'll be a pretty big show. I'm excited for that. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So basically what we're saying is that uh, Dennis Seaver is like a toddler. Like the second you turn your back on him, he's into the China. See, I, I prefer to think of it as Dennis Seaver, like mischievous holiday elf. Like German, <laughs> German holiday elf. Like he comes from a different holiday tradition than Americans. It's a yeah. more severe and less forgiving tradition. And so he's just out there causing mayhem everywhere he goes. Yeah. Sneaking into photos.